0: fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today we're bringing you
1: something that you've all been waiting for. Dun, dun, dun. But before <laughs> we let you in on the surprise, Emily, have you got a highlight to share?
0: I do. Um, my highlight may give the surprise away a bit, but I'll just say it anyway. Go for it. So my highlight is that Erin Morgan sir knows that I exist. Yay! Um, <laughs> so I made a TikTok about my annotated copy of The Starless Sea, (laughs) hint hint, and in the video I was like just showing a few notes that I'd made on the pages but I decided to put it on Twitter as well because I wanted to to tag her in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically she saw it and replied saying that she loved it and she was pleased that I'd shared it over there. And you guys all know that Erin Morgenstern's my favourite author so it meant a lot that she liked it, even if it was just like a silly little video. And it made my day.
1: Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> oh, I love that.
0: Yeah. She could have just liked the tweet. She didn't need to reply to it, but she did. And I just think it's nice when people that you like do that.
1: <laughs> Definitely. Like, she took a little minute out of her day to be like, this is what I think about this.
0: Yeah, it's cute. Aww. Uh What about you? Do you have
1: a highlight? Um, my highlight is startlingly similar. <laughs> um, oh. I did a response to Amy Kay's poem, Date Me, on oh, Instagram. Yeah. So Amy K wrote this poem. It's like a personal ad. And loads of people took it up as a prompt, even though she did not say it was a prompt. Everyone was <laughs> yeah. like, that's a cool idea. Um, and I posted one on my grid and she commented on it and said that she liked it and that the ending tied it up perfectly.
0: Oh, that's nice. I loved that, so... um, your version of it. It was really good.
1: Oh, thanks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what are you infatuated with this week, Emily? So I am, surprise, surprise, infatuated with The Starless Sea by Erin Morgenstern.
1: We have been waiting for Emily's Starless Sea infatuation for so long.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I probably... I'm buzzing. (laughs) I probably don't need to say this, but just in case anyone hasn't listened to the podcast before, The Starless Sea is my favourite book. I read it in January of 2020, and it, like, (laughs) not to sound dramatic, but it literally changed my life. So, like, it's the book that made me love reading again. It's the one that made me want to... Like write creatively again and because I'd, I'd kind of accepted that I was never really going to write a novel or if I did it would never get published but then I read this and I thought like fuck it <laughs> let's just try <laughs> so yeah I have like a lot to to thank this book and Erin Morgenstern for it's a bit mad mm-hmm. actually but yeah I'm very excited to talk about it today Yay. So yeah, as I said before I actually like bought myself a copy just to annotate because I didn't want to ruin my really nice hardback. <laughs> so yeah. I bought a little paperback one. And I actually had loads of fun doing it. I, as a side note, I I recommend that as like an exercise in like book loving. You know, if there's a copy <laughs> that you don't mind writing in, like it's quite fun to kinda go through and like maybe point out stuff that like you'll only notice on a second read or like, little notes to yourself or whatever, it was just fun. I love that, that's my favorite
1: thing to find in like a secondhand shop. Yeah, exactly. Is, like,
0: someone's heavily annotated copy. Yeah, definitely. I also realized rather spookily that I am the exact same age as the main character when the story takes mm. place, or at least I was when I read it like a few weeks ago. Um, <laughs> it's set two months before Zachary's 25th birthday, which is the same as me. And to get even spookier, his birthday is the 11th of March, while mine is the 9th. So it was a very, like, serendipitous (laughs) moment when I read that. Kindred spirits. Exactly. But anyway, on to the actual book. The Starless Sea came out in 2019, and it's Erin Morgenstern's second novel. Her first, The Night Circus, which is another favourite of mine, came out in 2011, so it's Fair to say, this one took a lot of time and work to create, and I think you can tell how well thought out it is when reading it as well. And this is one of those books where I don't really want to talk too much about the story because I do think the beauty of this book is kind of falling head first in with the main character and like discovering stuff as he discovers it. But essentially, Zachary Ezra Rollins is our main character. He's a grad student in Emerging New Media, which is basically video games. And mm. he has stumbled across a book of short stories called Sweet Sorrows in his university library. But really? what is special about this book is that one of the short stories is about him. Oh. <laughs> so I actually thought I would read that story before like talking about the rest of the book. So I'm going to kind of jump into the middle of it so what you need to know is that he's just walked home from school, and he's found a door painted on the wall in the alleyway behind his mother's fortune telling shop.
1: That's so weird. Sorry, before you like read that out, mm-hmm. I don't think I remember that this book had a mother with a fortune telling shop. But you've definitely told me that before. Mm but I wrote, I wrote a short story a month ago about a mum that is a fortune teller. Oh, that's That cool. must have, like, burrowed into my subconscious. <laughs> yeah, maybe.
0: <laughs> uh, right. <clears throat> the door is carved, no, painted, with sharp-cut geometric patterns that wind around its edges, creating depth where there is only flatness. In the centre, at the level where a peephole might be, and stylized with lines that match the rest of the painted carving, is a bee. Beneath the bee is a key, beneath the key is a sword. A golden, seemingly three-dimensional doorknob shimmers despite the lack of light. A keyhole is painted beneath, so dark it looks to be a void awaiting a key, rather than a few strokes of black paint. The door is strange and pretty and something that the boy does not have words for and does not know if there are words for, even fancy French expressions. Somewhere in the street an unseen dog barks but it sounds distant and abstract. The sun moves behind a cloud and the alley feels longer and deeper and darker, the door itself brighter. Tentatively, the boy reaches out to touch the door. The part of him that still believes in magic expects it to be warm, despite the chill in the air. expects the image to have fundamentally changed the brick. makes his heart beat faster even as his hand slows down because the part of him that thinks the other part is being childish prepares for disappointment. His fingertips meet the door below the sword and they come to rest on smooth paint covering cool brick, a slight unevenness to the surface betraying the texture below. It is just a wall just a wall with a pretty picture on it. But still, still there is the sensation tugging at him that this is more than what it appears to be. He presses his palm against the painted brick. The false wood of the door is a brown, barely a shade or two off from his own skin tone, as though it has been mixed to match him. Behind the door is somewhere else, not the room behind the wall, something more. He knows this, he feels it in his toes. This is what his mother would call a moment with meaning, a moment that changes the moments that follow. The son of the fortune teller knows only that the door feels important in a way that he cannot quite explain, even to himself. A boy at the beginning of a story has no way of knowing that the story has begun. He traces the painted lines of the key with his fingertips, marvelling at how much the key, like the sword and the bee in the doorknob, looks as though it should be three-dimensional. The boy wonders who painted it and what it means, if it means anything, if not the door at least the symbols, if it is a sign and not a door, or if it is both at once. In this significant moment, if the boy turns the painted knob and opens the impossible door, everything will change, but he does not. Instead, he puts his hands in his pockets. Part of him decides he is being childish and that he is too old to expect real life to be like books. Another part of him decides that if he does not try, he cannot be disappointed, and he can go on believing that the door could open, even if it is just pretend. He stands with his hands in his pockets, and considers the door for a moment more, before walking away. The following day, his curiosity gets the better of him, and he returns to find that the door has been painted over. The brick wall whitewashed to the point where he cannot even discern where, precisely, the door had been. And so the son of the fortune teller does not find his way to the starless sea, not yet.
1: Oh my God! <laughs> it's so magical. That was so magical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Fancy French phrases. Love that. Mm. Yeah. Felt it in his toes. <laughs> Love yeah. that. Also, the moment like with meaning, and it's a moment with meaning for you. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All oh, my heart! <laughs> so yeah, this is what Zachary reads and all of a sudden his world is flipped on his head because, you know, it must be mind-blowing to find a book with a story only you should know in it. Mm-hmm. And also it is proof that he let an opportunity slip through his fingers so he is annoyed at himself <laughs> for having done so. <laughs> So Zachary then sets out on a quest to find this place, to find the Starless Sea that he missed a chance to go to before. And when he does, uh, which is not a spoiler, he ends up entwined in a much larger story. So like he sets out wanting to discover the end of his story, but ends up in one much, much larger than just his. Oh. Aww. <laughs> I feel like this book would wreck me if I read it. Yeah. I honestly, I think I have written this in my little script at some point but like if you like books you (laughs) like you will like this book like it's oh it's so good so yeah this is like also a good moment I think to point out the writing itself it's obviously very beautiful very lyrical very whimsical I love the way she makes everything feel really dreamy which is probably because it's in like the present tense mm. and there's so much symbolism in the book as well the first two lines of the novel are actually there is a pirate in the basement the pirate is a metaphor but also still a person i love that <laughs> yeah like thought you'd like that so yeah oh my god <laughs> that's so good <laughs> so yeah from the start like you know you're entering a story about stories There are also like literal symbols everywhere. The main six are the bee, key, sword, heart, crown, and feather. You see them in like every imaginable way. And it's just such an imaginative story and so complex and interconnected, which is like why I'm trying to avoid mentioning the plot too much. Mm. I just love it so much. I'm going to say that a lot today. Apologies.
1: (laughs) I mean, we're we're called infatuated, we
0: <laughs> so I thought I would share an example of the kind of magical realism aspect of this book. Stern is wonderful at weaving the magic into the everyday, at making normal things feel whimsical, and mm-hmm. I have a scene here between Zachary and a character called Mirabelle, and. I'm not going to explain exactly who Mirabel is, but I'll just say she's a character from the location Zachary finds himself in, which is like a sprawling underground library that is also like a harbour on the Starless Sea. Essentially, she's the person who helps him out on his quest. And this quote shows some of that whimsy that I was talking about. Uh, And just a little side note, Mirabelle calls Zachary by his middle name Ezra. Okay. Sorry, Zachary says. This is all, this is a lot. No, I'm sorry, Mirabelle says. I'd say I'm sorry you got dropped into the middle of this, but truthfully I'm grateful for the company. She pulls a cigarette case from her bag and opens it offering it to Zachary, and before he can clarify that he doesn't smoke, he sees that the case is filled with small round candies, each one a different colour. Would you like a story? It might make you feel better and they'll only work while we're on the elevator. You're kidding, Zachary says. He takes a pale pink disc that looks like it might be peppermint. Mirabelle smiles at him. She puts the case away without taking one herself. Zachary puts the candy on his tongue he was right. Peppermint. No, steel. Cold steel. The story unfolds in his head more than in his ears, and there are words but there aren't. Pictures and sensations and tastes that change in progress from the initial mint and metal, through blood and sugar and summer air. Then it's gone. What was that? Zachary says. That was a story, Maribel says. You can try to tell it to me, but I know they're hard to translate. It was... Zachary pauses, trying to wrap his head around the brief, strange experience that did indeed leave a story in his head, like a half-remembered fairy tale. There was a knight, like the shining armour type. Many people loved him, but he never loved any of them in return, and he felt badly about all the hearts he broke, so he carved a heart on his skin for each broken one. Rows and rows of scarred hearts in his arms and his legs and across his chest. Then he met someone he wasn't expecting and... I... I don't remember what happened after that. Nights who break hearts and hearts that break nights, Mirabelle says. Do you know it? Zachary asks. No, each one's different. They have similar elements though. All stories do, no matter what form they take. Something was and then something changed. Change is what a story is, after all. Where did those come from? I found a jar full of them years ago. I like to keep with one hand, like always having a book with you, and I do that too. Zachary looks at this pink-haired mystery woman with a knight in his heart lingering on his tongue. What is this? he asks, meaning all of it, everything, and trusting she will understand. I will never have a satisfying answer to that question, Ezra, she says, and the smile that accompanies the sentiment is a sad one. This is the rabbit hole, Do you want to know the secret to surviving once you've gone down the rabbit hole? Zachary nods, and Mirabelle leans forward. Her eyes are ringed with gold. Be a rabbit, she whispers. Oh, I like Mirabelle. Yeah. (laughs) I also really want to eat one of those sweets.
1: (laughs) It sounds like a dream.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like when he's
1: talking about the, the tastes and the smells, but he can't then explain it.
0: Yeah, definitely. I also feel like this is like a bit of a meta moment in the book where Morgan Cern is saying to you that you just kind of have to surrender your rational brain and like go with it um, and <laughs> you know be a rabbit and I would just like to jump ahead a couple pages to this quote which shows us like more of the magical realism I love as in it has a bit more of like real life in it Um, so it's a continuation of the scene that I just read. It shouldn't be too long to walk, Mirabelle says. Sorry it's still poetry today. So what? Zachary asks, not certain he heard her correctly. Poetry, Mirabelle repeats. The weather. It's like a poem, where each word is more than one thing at once and everything's a metaphor, the meaning condensed into rhythm and sound in the spaces between sentences. It's all intense and sharp, like the cold in the wind. You could just say it's cold out. I could. The light falling over the streets is low late afternoon they dodge pedestrians on their way up broadway and by union square before taking a right and then zachary loses his familiar manhattan landmarks the map of the city in his mind dissolving into gridded blocks that disappear into nothingness and river mirabel is better at dodging pedestrians than he is we have a stop to make first she says pausing in front of a building and opening a glass door holding it open to allow a couple in layers upon layers of coats and scarves to exit. Are you serious? Zachary says, looking up at the ubiquitous green mermaid sign. We're stopping for coffee. Caffeine is an important weapon in my arsenal, Mirabelle replies, as they go inside and join the end of the short line. What would you like? Zachary sighs. I'm buying, Mirabelle prods. She pokes him in the arm. He doesn't remember when she put on knit fingerless gloves and his own freezing extremities have glove envy. Tall skim milk matcha green tea latte, Zachary says, annoyed that warm beverages actually seem like a good idea given the weather with its cold poetry. Got it, Mirabelle replies with a thoughtful nod like she's sizing him up via his Starbucks order. He's not sure what matcha and foam say about him. Everything seems normal, standing in line for coffee, The floor damp with melted slush. The glass case filled with neatly labelled baked goods. People sitting in corners staring at laptops. It's too normal. It's disconcerting and making him dizzy, and maybe once you go to Wonderland you're supposed to stay there because nothing will ever be the same in the real world. In the other world. Afterward. Afterworld. He wonders if the maybe-students, maybe-writers typing on their computers would believe him if he told them there was an underground trove of books and stories beneath their feet. They wouldn't. He wouldn't. He's not sure he does. The only thing keeping him from writing the whole thing off as an extraordinary hallucination is the pink haired lady next to him. He stares at the back of Mirabel's head as she investigates a shelf full of travel mugs. Her ears are pierced multiple times with silver hoops. There's a scar behind her ear, a line maybe an inch long. Her roots are starting to show near her scalp, a dark brown probably close to the colour of the wig she wore at the party, and he wonders if she went dressed as herself. He tries to remember if he saw her talk to anyone else, if she interacted with anyone but him. He couldn't have made up this much detail on a person. Imaginary ladies can't order coffee at Starbucks, probably. It's a relief when the girl behind the register looks directly at Mirabelle and asks what she would like. A grande honey stardust, no whip, Mirabel says. And though Zachary thinks maybe he heard her wrong, the cashier girl punches the order onto her screen without a question. And a tall skim milk match a green tea latte. Name? Zelda, Mirabelle says. The girl gives her a total and Mirabelle pays in cash, dropping her change into the tip jar. Zachary follows her to the other end of the counter. "'What was that you ordered?' he asked. "'Information,' Mirabelle responds but does not elaborate. "'Not enough people take advantage of the secret menu. Have you ever noticed that?' "'I go to independent coffee shops that write self-deprecating menus on chalkboards. "'Yet you had a very specific Starbucks order at the ready.' "'Zelda,' the barista calls out, placing two cups on the counter.' Is that Zelda for Princess or Fitzgerald? Zachary asks as Mirabelle picks them up. little bit of both, she says, handing him the smaller cup. Come on, let's brave the poetry again.
1: What a wild scene. (laughs) I know.
0: (laughs) 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 Yeah, I love that between all of the magic, there's a scene in a Starbucks with a little commentary (laughs) on how everyone has a Starbucks order (laughs)
1: I also love that little dig about the secret menu.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's such a cool book. I know. That quote I think is also like a good example of Zachary's characterization. Like you see his thought process a lot in this scene. The little remarks that he makes, the phrases he makes up like love envy.
1: <laughs> mm.
0: Um it's also just really bookish. Like between those two quotes I read out, you've got like Alice in Wonderland, the conversation about like poetry, and metaphor, and the weather. The costume that Zachary mentions, Mirabel wearing when he meets her, was Max from Where the Wild Things Are. and um, oh. The sweets that melt into stories, uh, the two Zeldas. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I call this book like a book lover's paradise. Yeah. And I think you can see why <laughs> from this quote.
1: Definitely. Oh man, it's so lovely.
0: The starless sea. By which i mean the novel is actually made up of lots of different books so there's sweet sorrows the book of short stories that zachary finds there are two other books fortunes and fables and the ballad of simon and eleanor and there are also stories on pages ripped out of these books some diary entries from a character who i like won't mention today There's even that story from the suite that Zachary ate. Um, Wow. Yeah, so The Starless Sea, as in the novel, is all of those stories alternating with Zachary's plotline. And it probably goes without saying, but they all connect together somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought I would just kind of end my quotes for today by reading out one of the short stories, because I feel like I'm doing a disservice if I don't. And it was really hard to pick just one, because I do love them all. There's one called The Inn at the Edge of the World, which is maybe like just my favourite. But even then, I changed my mind a lot. The one I have selected was mostly picked for length, to be honest, but also because it's one that I don't think you need to have too much understanding of the world to get it. Okay. So this one is called The Three Swords, and it's from the book Fortunes and Fables. So are these, like, I don't know what the book word for this
1: is, but are these, like, diegetic books where they are books that Zachary encounters or are they books that are in the book but that he doesn't encounter?
0: No, he reads all of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so this is The Three Swords. The sword was the greatest the smith had ever made after years of making the most exquisite swords in all the land. He had not spent an inordinate amount of time in its crafting, He had not used the finest of materials, but still the sword was a weapon of a calibre that exceeded his expectations. It was not made for a particular customer, and the smith found himself at a loss as he tried to decide what to do with it. He could keep it for himself, but he was better at crafting swords than at using them. He was reluctant to sell it, though he knew it'd fetch a good price. The swordsmith did what he always did when he felt indecisive. He paid a visit to the local seer. There were many seers in the neighbouring land who were blind and saw in ways that others could not, though they could not use their eyes. The local seer was merely nearsighted. The local seer was often found at the tavern, at a secluded table in the back of the room, and he would tell the futures of objects, or people, if he was brought a drink. He was better at seeing the future of objects than the futures of people. The swordsmith and the seer had been great friends for years. Sometimes he would ask the seer to read swords. He went to the tavern and brought the new sword. He brought the seer a drink. To seeking, the seer said, lifting his cup. To finding, the swordsmith replied, lifting his drink in return. They talked of current events and politics and the weather before the smith showed him the sword. The seer looked at the sword for a long time. He asked the smith for another drink and the smith obliged. The seer finished his second drink and then handed the sword back. This sword will kill the king, the seer told the smith. What does that mean? the smith asked. The seer shrugged. It will kill the king, he repeated. He said no more about it. The smith put the sword away and they discussed other matters for the rest of the night. The next day the swordsmith tried to decide what to do with the sword, knowing that the seer was rarely wrong. Being responsible for the weapon that killed the king did not sit well with the swordsmith, though he had previously made many swords that had killed many people. He thought he should destroy it, but he could not bring himself to destroy so fine a sword. After much thought and consideration, he crafted two additional swords, identical and indistinguishable from the first. Even the swordsmith himself could not tell them apart. As he worked, he received many offers from customers who wished to purchase them, but he refused. Instead, the swordsmith gave one sword to each of his three children, not knowing who would receive the one that would kill the king, and he gave it no more thought because none of his children would do such a thing, and if any of the swords fell into other hands, the matter is left to fate and time, and fate and time can kill as many things as they please and will eventually kill them all. The swordsmith told no one what the seer had said, lived all his days and kept his secret until his days were gone. The youngest son took his sword and went adventuring. He was not a terribly good adventurer and he found himself distracted, visiting unfamiliar villages and meeting new people and eating interesting food. His sword rarely left its scabbard. In one village he met a man he fancied greatly and this man had a fondness for rings. So the youngest son took his disused sword to a smith and had it melted down and then hired a jeweller to craft rings from the metal. He gave the man one ring each year for every year they spent together. There were a great many rings. The eldest son stayed at home for years and used his sword for duelling. He was good at duelling and made quite a lot of money. With his savings, he decided to take a sea voyage and he took his sword with him, hoping he might learn as he travelled and improve his skills. He studied with the crew of the ship and would practice on the deck when the winds were calm, but one day he was disarmed too close to the rail. His sword fell into the sea and sank to the bottom, impaling itself onto coral and sand. It is there still. The middle child, the only daughter, kept her sword in a glass case in her library. She claimed it was decorative, a memory of her father who had been a great swordsmith and that she had never used it. This was not true. She often took it from its resting place when she was alone late at night and practised with it. Her brother had taught her some dueling, but she had never used this particular sword for jewels. She kept it polished, knew every inch, every scratch. Her fingers itched for it when it was not nearby. The feel of it in her hand was so familiar that she carried the sword with her into her dreams. One night, she fell asleep in her chair by the fire in the library. Though the sword rested in its case on the shelf nearby, she held it in her hand and she began to dream. In her dream, she walked through a forest. The branches of the trees were heavy with cherry blossoms, hung with lanterns, and stacked with books. As she walked, she felt many eyes watching her, but she could not see anyone. Blossoms floated around her like snow. She reached a spot where a large tree had been cut down to a stump. The stump was surrounded by candles and piled with books, and atop the books there was a beehive, honey dripping from it and falling over the books and the stump of the tree, though there were no bees to be seen. There was only a large owl, perched atop the beehive, a white and brown owl wearing a golden crown, its feathers ruffled as the swordsmith's daughter approached. "'You have come to kill me,' the Owl King said. "'I have,' the swordsmith's daughter asked. "'They find a way to kill me, always. They have found me here, even in dreams.' "'Who?' the swordsmith's daughter asked, but the Owl King did not answer her question. A new king will come to take my place. Go ahead. It is your purpose. The swordsmith's daughter had no wish to kill the owl, but it seemed she was meant to. She did not understand, but this was a dream, and such things make sense in dreams. The daughter of the swordsmith cut off the owl king's head. One swift, well-practised swing sliced through feather and bone. The owl's crown fell from its severed head, clattering to the ground near her feet. The swordsmith's daughter reached down to retrieve the crown, but it disintegrated beneath her fingers, leaving naught but golden dust. Then she woke, still in the chair by the fire in her library. On the shelf where the sword had been, there was a white and brown owl perched on the empty case. The owl remained with her for the rest of her days. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite spooky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it because it does feel like a fable. Like, it feels like a very old story. Mm. And yeah, you do find out where the sword went later on. How it connects to everything. I love that, like, structure in a fable
1: of, like, the three children go off and do everything as well.
0: I know, it feels very, um... Oh, what's the name? You know the one that's in Harry Potter? That's, like, the... Yeah, like, the Elder... The Deathly Hallows. Yeah. Yeah. Feels kind of like that vibe, doesn't it? I also love
1: the... Like, I don't know if it was an intentional joke, but the idea of asking an owl
0: who, and an owl doesn't respond. I thought that is well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah.
0: I, I don't really have a lot to say about that story, I just kind of wanted to share one with you. But yeah, I did want to add that I did actually talk about a criticism of this book, that it's too slow in our Christmas special. It's the first quote I read out in that episode and I talk about why I disagree with that criticism and how it's purposeful that this book is quite a slow burn Um, and the point is that Zachary's meant to be exploring and there's lots of context given about that in the book so like when I see people criticise it for that I just feel like they haven't paid attention you know. So yeah I didn't want to like repeat myself too much today but if you are interested in hearing about that go listen to that episode. Basically, if you don't like the book, that's cool. We all have different opinions. But I will defend <laughs> it if you say that, like, you're disappointed that it's slow because it is. You're literally told it's going to be. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you cannot like it, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. You're not wrong to not like it. But I just think that's a bad criticism, because yeah. y- it's set up from the start. You know. Um, yeah, it's intentional.
1: You can't criticize a book for carrying through its own intention.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But anyway, I think what did make me connect with this book is, like, Zachary's personality and his kind of worries about life. Like He's kind of questioning what path he wants to take and he's impatient that he doesn't know the ending and he wants adventure, he wants to be transported into a novel. So I just think it's so wonderful that Morgan Cern's written a book where that's what the main character gets to do. It's just total escapism, which I love, but it's still got its roots in like real life and real worries, which I think is what makes it like a compelling read. And as I've mentioned before, I love stories that are about stories <laughs> and storytelling, mm. and this book is all about that. And it really does explore like every kind of storytelling imaginable.
1: <laughs> it's nice as well, you said he was like a grad student, right? So yeah. he's older. And I saw a tweet the other day that I just agreed with so much that was like every coming of age story that were that is labelled coming of age is about mm. like seventeen year olds. But I feel like when yeah, you right. actually come of age it's like when you're twenty to twenty five.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree with that, and I think that's why new adult is like a genre that's been a thing now so this would fit into new adult Mm. um like ninth house which i talked about last week that's like new adult like the the book that i'm writing is new adult because i could have made it ya but i'm like actually the stuff that he worries about stuff that i worry about and i'm 24 so yeah yeah it's not teenage worries it's young new adult yeah exactly and see, that's that's kind of me today. I know we say this a lot, but there's so much more I could have said. Um, (laughs) It's like crammed full of beautiful story and metaphor and characters I've not even mentioned who I love. For those of you who have read it, I'm talking about Dorian and Eleanor. And yeah, this really has like cemented itself as my favourite, even on reread. And I think The Starless Sea is wonderful and I'm looking forward to whatever Erin Morgenstern writes in the future. I think she's writing something at the moment. Um, Exciting. And yeah everyone should read this. Like I think if you listen to this podcast you like books so you know it's kind (laughs) of a given that you'll at least like some of this book.
1: I would I would endorse that. I I've been meaning to read it for ages, and the only reason that I haven't is that you have two copies, so I'm not going to buy one, but they're not here right now. so.
0: No, the hardback is in the flat. Is it? Yeah, the hardback oh, is it's... in my room, yeah. Oh, see, I just don't
1: go in your room. I'm maybe going to go and steal it from your room. That's alright.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, thank you for indulging me for however long <laughs> that took to talk about this book. Shall we move on to your infatuation this week?
1: Sure. So my infatuation this week isn't a singular book, because, oh, yeah. to be honest, I've been reading all of Emily's novels that she's already <laughs> talked about on the podcast. But in between all that, I've obviously still been keeping up with my poetry. Mm-hmm. So what I thought I'd do this week was read some poetry that I think is pandemic poetry. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> And I don't mean by that poetry that's been written during the pandemic. Basically, working in the news and also just like living in the world, it can be really hard not to get overwhelmed by just all the things going wrong. And obviously that's been magnified by the pandemic, that feeling of like overwhelm. Because not only is the world even more on fire, but everyone's own individualism is heightened because we're literally isolated. Mm -hmm. So because loads of people are in that situation... I think this feeling of being separated from reality because of reality is really prevalent, mm. and I thought that I would just share some poems that either like reflect that feeling or soothe that feeling, um, okay. because I've been I've been reading a lot of them lately, and I thought other people might want them too. Yeah, I um, love that. So, yeah, a lot of these were written before the pandemic, which I find comforting because it reminds me that the world was always a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Like, even before the world was a lot. So it's especially okay to feel like the world is a lot right now. I have nine poems that I'm going to share, but none of them are that long. And I'm not going to discuss them all in depth, but I Mm -hmm. hope that kind of reading them all out alongside each other accumulates in a kind of analysis in itself right
0: okay the grouping
1: of them that's the analysis today (laughs) the first one that I want to read out is the most on the nose it's from Blythe Baird's collection if my body could speak and it's called balancing balancing I am trying to be happy and pay attention to the world around me I do not know if it's possible to
0: do both at the same time (laughs) <laughs> and <Yeah. that's> it <laughs> I think you shared that one before. Um, like I definitely on have. Instagram or something. Yeah, because I remember that one.
1: <laughs> I I don't think I need to explain why I come back to that poem literally hundreds of times <laughs> a year. But um, yeah, same girl. Yep. <laughs> and the second is by Phoebe Stuckus. Or Stooks, I don't know how you pronounce her last name. So I'm sorry, Phoebe. But anyway, it's from her debut collection, Platinum Blonde, which I got as a Christmas gift and absolutely devoured it in one day. It's honestly stunning. And I just wanted to say it is perfectly titled because not only does it have all the like polished old Hollywood glamour of like a Platinum Blonde, mm. but All the way through, it deals with like a tension between toughness, as in platinum, and softness, as in blonde, Mm. Mm. in like modern femininity. It's such a clever title. (laughs) Um, And Phoebe is a year younger than me, I think, your age, and I actually want to be as good as her when I (laughs) grow up. So, (laughs) anyway, this is a poem called Fox, and it is a pandemic mood. Okay. Fox. I'm usually hanging around in dressing gowns, buttering toast and calling a friend to complain about poetry or the government. It's a rough time to be young, or to care about anything, so I keep wandering through London looking for something to do. I rattle around these streets like an urban fox in my second-hand fur, eating junk out of polystyrene. I don't like to follow the thick grey artery that leads to my flat where I live with myself. I keep telling myself that crying in cabs could be glamorous if I did it correctly. I'm doing my best with bad nights and bad love. Honey, it's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that one because yeah. it's just it's so witty but that um that last line, just honey, is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I feel so seen.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely That's very much a mood for our generation. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> the next one I want to read is a little bittersweet. It's called Career Path of a Nine-Year-Old, and it's by Jeremy Raiden. And I read another poem of his from the same collection, Slow Dance with Sasquatch, on the Christmas
0: special. Oh yeah, I really liked that one.
1: Honestly, everything he writes is like absolute escapist porn, (laughs) um, which is probably why I've been rereading it so much. Mm. But this poem to me is about when you're a kid and you want to like be everything, but Mm. you're stuck just being a kid. And that kind of helplessness in the face of wanting to do everything is a vibe career path of a nine-year-old after Mindy Netifi I want to be a wolf. I have a book with them hunting moose in Alaska. I hunt lizards on the soccer field while everyone else plays basketball. I can outrun any lizard or even deer or even anybody in my whole grade except Donald C so I want to be a baseball player like Ricky Henderson. He steals all the bases. I want to steal the voice of Kevin. I want to steal the words he calls me. One day they'll run from my bicep muscles and get scared of my face paint. One day I'll body slam him right when they shoot out of his mouth. So I want to be a wrestler. I practice sleeper holds on the pillows when it's past my bedtime. I can't sleep because there's a force field around my bed that keeps the sleep out. Which I even told the doctor with the green sweater who makes me draw pictures and only has nine hairs that make his head look like a super, super shiny zebra. And he said he could help. But I don't know what the little orange pills can do about a force field so I want to be a force field specialist maybe when I'm a grown-up they'll have real-life force fields I wish they had them now I wish I had one when my friends dared my little sister to punch me in the face on the baseball diamond I bled like someone in a shark movie I bled like I had a bull shark also known as a Zambezi shark trapped in my face eating its way out of my face and then everyone laughed and I couldn't turn invisible no matter how hard I closed my eyes so I want to be a wizard Then I'd have invisibility powers and other powers like flying and wisdom and a pet dragon who wouldn't let anyone else laugh at me. His name would be Raptor Laser Death Volcano Raiden. I love dragons. I can draw the ones that live in the hills next to the freeway. We moved away from my old house and I brought them with me and now they guard my room. They have arrows for eyelashes that can shoot and grow back and scorpion tails made of diamond material but black diamond material because black is scary and the tail can shoot poison or acid and they have teeth made out of laser beams and instead of just normal fire they breathe bats that are on fire and they can control them with telepathy. The only thing scarier is Ritalin. He's a little yellow knight. He cuts off their heads and buries them in the dirt so I want to be a paleontologist. I always lose things. Maybe I could dig em up. If I dig deep enough, maybe I could find things other people lost too, like how mummy and daddy used to love each other, and I could even put it back together, but I wouldn't put it in a museum. Maybe it got buried when the big earthquake came, the one that broke my grandma's house, and my friend's house, and the houses of everyone else standing on the streets of Chatsworth, like dropped ice cream cones. I wish I could gather all of them up and keep them safe. I have so much room, so... I want to be a house but I'm bigger than a house so maybe I could be a library and everyone could come in and read about things so amazing they'll forget about all the things they lost and then maybe when they're done and looking for something new to read they'll stumble upon that book about wolves the one that says how they talk to each other better than we do how they're not talking to the moon like I thought but to each other teaching the other wolves everything they know about what goes on in these old dark woods so I want to be a wolf. I want to be a wolf, so when my little sister asks me why everything is changing and what's out there and why does God keep running away and coming back and running away and coming back and why do our hearts do this even when we don't ask them to, I'll know exactly what to
0: say. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, I love that. I mean, obviously, my favourite bit is about, like, the library and the wolves, (laughs) because it's (laughs) a but, like... Oh, that was so, like magical and childish but like real
1: <laughs> yeah i know it's so emotional it was that line i wish i could gather all of them up and keep them safe
0: yeah But i'm
1: just like every time that i go to work and like i read all these stories about all the bad things happening to people i just hear that line oh like i just wish it would all stop oh it's such a beautiful poem. He's honestly, this book is amazing. Even if you're not a poetry person, like you can see from that, it's such a fun, mm. like, energetic book. It's not, it's not a serious book, but it has a lot of serious moments in it.
0: Yeah, and it feels like there's a lot of storytelling in it, which there mm. obviously is in lots of poetry. But I think if if I'm being like very very general, <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh, so you know some people look at poetry and think like oh it's just a bunch of words and metaphors and it's a bit too like oh I don't un- I don't understand it but like that there's yeah. obviously a lot of depth to it but it's like it's an easier story to follow.
1: Yeah, it's narrative poetry. Most yeah. of it is. It's not like yeah, it's not like impressionist or abstract poetry like where they just say an image and that's it.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's it's got a whole story. Oh, I love it so much.
0: Okay, <laughs>
1: gathering myself after that. The other thing, by the way, that I love about that poem is that I it has very little punctuation, and I hadn't decided to read it like fast and then slow, but it mm. just makes you do that.
0: Mm, yeah,
1: it's it's written really well. So the next two are both from Sabrina Benham's book, Depression and Other Magic Tricks, because I obviously can't do a poetry section without bringing this book in. <laughs> The first one is called The Loneliest Sweet Potato <laughs> and it's probably one of my top three favourite poems ever. So, here we go. Oh, also, there is a video of Sabrina herself reading this on YouTube and it's much better, but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> the Loneliest Sweet Potato. I am at the grocery store because I feel sad. I feel sad because nobody is in love with me. Nobody's in love with me, but everybody loves me. Everybody loves me because I'm good at making people feel good. I'm good at making people feel good because I've had a lot of practice on myself. Practice on myself because I feel sad a lot. I feel sad a lot, but when I make people feel good, I feel good for a little bit. I feel good for a little bit until I get lonely. I get lonely and I am uncomfortable in my lonely. At the grocery store, I practice trying to make myself feel good by pretending I am a regular person buying her groceries and not a very sad person trying to distract herself from crying. Crying gives me a headache. Headaches make me want to crawl into bed. Crawling into bed is what sad people do. What sad people do when they are lonely looks a lot like me at the grocery store. At the grocery store, I feel sad, but I look just like everybody else while picking out avocados. Or lemons items no one refers to as comfort food comfort food makes me want to crawl into bed crawling into bed reminds me of two things I am sad and I am alone I am alone in the grocery store moving slow in the condiment aisle in the condiment aisle important decisions are made and everybody knows it's perfectly acceptable to stand around for too long stand around for too long and I will begin to tap dance Tap Dance Lonely in the Condiment Aisle is a great title for a book, I think, as I wait in line to reach the cashier. The cashier seems surprised when I ask her how her night is going. Her night is going okay, she says. She says nothing else except cash, credit or debit. She waves goodbye. Goodbye is the saddest word I know. The saddest word you know is my name. My name walks around at the grocery store and feels less sad. Less sad because at the grocery store, at least nobody knows there is nobody in love with me.
0: (laughs) I do love that one as well. It's so. It's
1: not nice, but (laughs) it's so. It's almost like a lullaby. It's kind of comforting. Like,
0: even though it. I suppose it's not comforting, but the way she's written it is.
1: (laughs) I think it's like. Because it's a about loneliness, and B is about like seeking connection and doing normal everyday things, mm. which we obviously can't do. It's very pandemicy to me mm. but also the structure is it is that it feels very like repetitive and lulling, which is how this year feels, and so I think it's almost like listening to a sad song when you're sad, yeah, yeah, like it make it makes you feel better, yeah <laughs> because at least you can like you know that someone else is sad. <laughs> yeah. But the second poem I want to read from this book is a little bit more whimsical. And to me, it speaks to the fact that escapism in art and fantasy has just become a full-on survival technique this year. Okay. <laughs> it's called... So my friend tells me she identifies as a mermaid. So my friend tells me she identifies as a mermaid and I'm like, girl, I saw the little mermaid. Even she did not want to be a mermaid. So I guess my question is... Is it just easier to look at yourself in the mirror if you're not human? Does that make it easier to pretend you don't have depression? Because depression is exclusively human? If so, shoot, maybe I'm a mermaid too. If being a mermaid means you've cried enough tears to drown your grasp of reality. If being a mermaid means you truly believe the grass is greener than the blue you're surrounded by. If being a mermaid means you never walk away from a person you love, because you can't, because you have a fin then yes, I think I'm definitely a mermaid. And every song I've ever sung has filled my lungs with sea. But I am not drowning. Not like I thought I was when I was human. (laughs) Which again, super duper sad. But I think it's like really sweet. I love that line. If being a mermaid means you truly believe the grass is greener than the blue you're surrounded by. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that. I also love when she's just like, did even <laughs> the little mermaid didn't want to be a mermaid. <laughs> mermaid
1: didn't want to be a
0: mermaid.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we all need a bit of escapism sometimes. So maybe maybe the key is to pretend you're a mermaid.
0: Maybe, maybe that's why all my books on this podcast are just me being like, Oh, I got to escape again. I
1: Meanwhile well, there's me being like, Here's the realities of the pandemic <laughs> and I can't stop reading it. <laughs> So this next one is from Phil Kay's collection, Date and Time, which, as you'll imagine, has a lot to do with memory and the passage of time and growth, so you can see how I'd get lockdown vibes. Mm-hmm. But this poem, Summer slash New York City, is one that I've come back to a lot over the past year because I think so many people, including myself, have taken the time to like fall in love with their surroundings again, mm. because we've all had to. Um, and I think that's been one of like the sweeter and more romantic parts of this whole night yeah. So this is a little poem to celebrate that. Summer slash New York City. There is something about walking in New York City in the plump lilt of August with a pair of mediocre headphones blasting I Know What You Want by Mariah Carey and Busta Rhymes that delivers unto you a certain swagger. Or maybe it's just my legs, avoiding the sweat dripping onto parts of my body I'd forgotten for a season. Or maybe it is just Mariah hitting the high notes. The holy summer. The goddamn summer. Both this city, a flag unfurling to show the threads it is made of, horchata, snow cones, sidewalks that become a catalogue of small prayers. Praise you, well-dressed family from Spain. The Whitney Museum is that way. Praise you, man on Christopher Street with your fishnet skirt. Praise you, 14-year-old boys on bikes who tell me to watch your skinny ass when I know they mean please be careful, do not jaywalk, we care about you and your relatively average-sized ass. This city, a staggering mentor, wonders aloud about cocktail at daybreak. This city, a cathedral of evaporation, The sweat rising up, my own body, leaving my own body, Unkissing my own skin, is it any wonder our lips feel so lonesome These long evenings? My chest, a pair of glass doors with an ice rink behind, Freshly zambonied, its scrapes smoothed over. This city whispers a reckless promise in your ear, I will not forget you, hails you as king, Though you know yourself a pauper. And the street lamps know, and the rooftops know, and the other people know, but they too believe the whisper, a room full of royalty, the season of the untroubled lie, the contented fiction. It is five forty six AM on the lower east side. I walk in the dark, yet to sleep. Suddenly, across the skyline, the morning emerges, with a strut only an August sun can have. Lights my face and the empty street bellows. I
0: remember you. I just think that's a happy poem. Yeah. (laughs) You can really picture that one, I think. Yeah.
1: It feels like just walking along and seeing all of these sights. But yeah. (laughs) Walking and looking at things is a big big mood these days, because what else is there to do? Yeah. And the next one I want to read is, well, I think that something that we've all had to learn throughout the many lockdowns is patience. Um, Mm -hmm. delayed gratification or no gratification at all and the ability to continue to have hope even when things are really bad Mm. so this is a poem by Jane Yeh from her book Discipline which I've talked about on this podcast before and it's called A Short History of Patience The soft chiffon of the river as it turns out of view The woodpeckers stutter saying wish you were here The birch branches tangled like wires overhead, sending mixed messages to the birds. Baby, I could go out on a limb and say the evening's smoky eye draws near. The floorboards creak like a harpsichord played wrong. The kettle rumbles with anticipation, then shuts itself off. Honey, without you it's cold as a warthog's bare bottom, or the draught that slips in under the door. Without you, I'm lonesome as a cricket in a jam jar. Chirping till the air runs out. Won't you come home? Says the dust band to the wandering broom. Catch as catch can, say the weeds to the scythe. Ryegrass spreading through the yard like an open secret. The blue line of the horizon like an eyelid closed.
0: Oh. It's very serene. Yeah, it is. I loved it. It feels very patient. It was the first line, was it the chiffon of the river? Mm. I loved that image. Yeah, I love anything that's to
1: do with, like, fabric mm. on something that isn't fabric. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it gets me. And another, like, funny lockdown phenomenon that I, I've i really enjoyed has been the, like, idealised daydreaming of, like, what we'll do when this is all over? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and I don't know about you, but, like, everything that I think of, even if it's really simple, seems totally... Like preposterous (laughs) but it's still really fun to think about Mm. so in that spirit this is another little Jane Ye one because she just delights me and it's called Utopia Villas Okay In our utopia the oysters always sing There is a metronome the colour of the Sacré-Cœur There is a messenger opening a secret scroll, good news In our lazy masonette we count the days until summer Pizza will come in two sizes, snack and preposteroso. Poetic cockapoos will serenade us with their thoughts, while beseeching looks shoot out of their eyes like lasers. In the strongholds of the north, a Cumberland sausage will rise, while a slain avocado comes back to life as guacamole. Good karma. We will spread out everywhere and chill like a floppy omelette. We will be meticulous in love, ornithology and dance. Long avenues of deer will part like magic in the sentimental sunlight. When we kiss, magpies will burst into song like a chorus of witches.
0: (laughs) Oh, I enjoyed that. It's so cute. I love
1: long avenues of deer will part like magic. (laughs) Yeah. It's like... It reminds me of, I don't know why, because it's got nothing to do with this, but you know the Be Our Guest sequence in Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> yeah. Where like everything is mental and like psychedelic. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's quite a <laughs> it's similar, similar vibe. <laughs>
1: and the last poem that I found is in Ella Risbridger's anthology, Set Me on Fire, which I have ranted about <laughs> so often on this, on this podcast. And it's called... Bad New Government <laughs> by Emily Berry also, I'm just I'm going to show you, people won't be able to see but this poem is Printed Landscape Ooh. which, I don't know why but something about like the fact that it's always Printed Landscape and makes you like turn the book around to read it, makes it feel extra appropriate for unprecedented mm-hmm. times mm-hmm. this is called Bad New Government Love, I woke in an empty flat to a bad new government It was cold the fridge was still empty my heart that junkie was still chomping on the old fuel Vroom! I start the day like a tired motorcyclist I want to go very fast and email you about the following happy circumstances early rosebuds a birthday party a new cake recipe but today it's hot water bottles and austerity breakfast and my toast burns in protest you are not here of course but you live in me like a tiny valve of a man You light up my chambers. Later I will call to tell you about the new Prime Minister, the worrying new developments, and about how I am writing my first political poem, which is also, always, about my love for you. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's just... It's just cute. Just the world world is a binfire, but, you know, people still love each other. Yeah. I also love the idea of my toast burns in protest.
0: Your toast always burns on the day that it really shouldn't.
1: Yeah, like the one day where you're like, the toast will be the saving grace of my day. Yeah. And then your toast burns and you're like, I hate everything. (laughs) So that's it. I hope that everyone enjoyed Pandemic Poetry Corner. I know it's not a fun thing to think about, but... I hope that at least one of those had a line that made you feel seen or made you smile or made you cry in a cathartic
0: way. I think a lot of them were quite hopeful like at the at the heart of it. I don't think you've it's not like you've picked ones that are wholly depressing.
1: <laughs> no, I don't I don't think that I like poetry that's wholly depressing yeah. unless unless it knows that it is. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not here for like the emo kids of poetry. (laughs) Yeah, I think it is quite hopeful. Yeah. But we'll see. (laughs) Do you have any writing chat to share with us this week?
0: I do. My big writing news is that I finished the first draft of my novel, which is exciting. It's the first time I've ever finished anything so big. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. I started writing it in February last year. So it has taken like almost a full year, about eleven months. Definitely feeling proud of myself. And Definitely. What I thought I would talk about today is like the plans I've set up for the first redraft, just in case anyone else is in a similar mm-hmm. situation and has never done this before and doesn't know what they're doing. The first few steps I've like just completed. One of those was to like read through the draft in its entirety without changing anything. I like read okay. it as a reader rather than as the person who is writing it. What I did do was like just leave comments for myself just using like the little word comment feature. Just mm-hmm. things I could maybe like add to scenes mostly because I know that for most of my redrafting, I'll be expanding on things rather than cutting things. And I'm also really lucky that I have our friend Stephanie reading over my work too. So she's basically going to do the same, read through the first draft and like give me feedback on it. And I also set out my timeline a bit more properly. (laughs) Um, I noticed going through that I have multiple cases of me just being like a few days later. So, I just Mm -hmm. wanted to check that all the time it made sense, uh, which is more for Mm. me than like the reader, but I just needed to make sure it was straightened out. And actually, the timeline did make sense, which was fine. So, I don't really have to change anything there. And yeah, really, the rest is just to kind of go through scene by scene and write. I jump about a lot when I'm writing, both like creatively and academically but I am going to try and approach it as like linear as I can. I'm not really going to like promise that to myself because if I get inspired by another scene then I'm going to go work on that. Mm. But I'm going to try and sort of go through from the start. As I said, I've never done this before so I don't really know if this is how it's going to go but that's what I've planned to do and I am actually quite excited to go back and redraft. There was a part of me that was terrified that I would finish this draft and hate it and like never touch it again. Mm. But thankfully that isn't the case, I do actually like it.
1: I think that's half the battle, is when you actually like your own story.
0: Yeah, like, the the story is all there now, the plot is all there, the dialogue is all there, but now I get to make it pretty and Mm. make it more descriptive and... I do kinda get to do the fun stuff now. Like it's gonna be a lot of words that I have to add, but it's like all the fun words now. (laughs) Yeah, all the like
1: playing with different metaphors and like making all your symbolism match up and Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Um so yeah, I thought I'd just give you guys a wee update. If you do have any tips, like please feel free to to send them in, if anyone has ever redrafted a novel before, but yeah, that's me.
1: That's so cool. I'm so inspired that you've Aww. finished it and like <laughs> you're redrafted It's just so cool. Like it's obviously you know people do these things all the time because there are books all the time. Yeah. But I've like seen you like I saw you start it. <laughs> yeah. Like, like in our house. <laughs> I know. And now it's done. And I'm like, oh my god, she she really wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I know, yeah. It feels like, it does feel like an achievement. I don't think you realise how much work it is until you're doing it. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, we have friends who've done it as well. Like, they've all written first drafts and they all, like, I know this isn't true, but they all seem to have done it so quickly. But I don't know if maybe it's just (laughs) because time is quite different when you're looking at someone's social media than when you're doing it yourself. So, yeah. Definitely feeling proud of myself as you should thank you what about you how's your writing been it's been all right i haven't been
1: doing a lot because i've realized that january to march is not a productive time for me Mm, Um, and it never it never is and i was super prolific in december like i wrote loads and then it got to january and i've just sort of decided to accept that my brain's natural rhythm is to be not so serious now (laughs) Um, and that by the time that it gets to like spring I'll be inspired again yeah and that's been quite a nice thing to realize is to be like because I used to panic that if I didn't just work all the time that I would lose it
0: Mm, yeah
1: and like never go back to but like I know that I will I'm like I I will so it's fine in the meantime when I'm taking a break from all of my serious writing (laughs) I had put a call out last episode to Mm. our listeners to send in their moments of city magic to help me build a little fun idea that I'd had. And some of you did, which was amazing, so thank you for that. And so I decided what I'd do this week is not read out the finished product from any of those ideas, because I haven't finished with them yet, Mm. but to read out a little prologue that I wrote to kind of set up the premise of what I'm doing. So that'll hopefully give people an idea of what I might do with the stories that they'll send in. Okay. So I'll read out this little prologue and then I'll talk about it. Most of the time people choose a city. They watch it from afar for a while, like a lonely child on a playground watches skipping rope games, chewing her plats, until they've watched for so long that their feet decide they simply must go over and try to hop into its rhythm. I don't know reader if you've ever tried to approach a knot of girls on a playground and join their skipping game if you have we needn't revisit it if you haven't this book may not be for you as I was saying most people go to a chosen city for love or for money Armed with journey squash succulents, and a resolution to buy more tailored trousers, and they spend one horrible day falling out with all their friends as they haul a couch up a narrow staircase, only to find it is too wide for the doorframe. They wonder if they've made a huge mistake that first night, and about one night every three months for the rest of their time there. But mostly they are fine. They go to work, they take pictures and buses, they kiss on balconies and they notice the view. They may even stay long enough to rouge the cheeks of that awful couch day with some giggly nostalgia over Sunday lunch. They live. Eventually, they die or move. But then there are others. The ones who didn't choose. Who were born to the city or who were simply passing through and somehow never left. The ones for whom the walls seem to open, the pavements slope and bend to lead them always further in. The dangers who can walk safely in the middle of the night and the angels who somehow look just right in the most coveted window seat in the coffee shop. They seem to already have the dance of the city stored in their feet. They never get lashed by the ropes. To the untrained eye, they are unremarkable. To the observant, infuriating. See, most of the time, people choose cities. But sometimes, cities choose people. And that's where we come in. Many think we died out with the rise of concrete and glass, but many are usually wrong. We simply evolved to these chromed forests, like the skinny foxes who know nothing of warrens but are the keenest of bin thieves, or the park squirrel whose ears prick at the static crinkle of a crisp packet. You may have seen our kind before, in creaking books with stiff pages that let off the vanilla reek of time's armpit, but we have long abandoned the old ways of our pastoral and primitive cousins. We do not live under quaint mushrooms or in mossy stumps. We no longer dance in clearings of wildflowers and ripple cliffside pools. We do not dress in petals and dew. We are not out for your name or your firstborn, no. What we want is much more modern, your attention. We are the urban fae, and reader, if you've found us, it's because we found you first.
0: Oh, I love it so
1: much! (laughs) (laughs) So this project stems from, as I said the last time, me thinking about all the ways a city can be magical. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea that just as we have forest fairies and water nymphs and whatnot, there could be these new modern kind of urban sprites which create magic in a city. Oh So the idea, I've said like book in that prologue, the idea isn't a serious one. It's not like a novel or even a like short stories. The idea is like a series of episodes or monologues each from a different character who embodies a different part of the urban Fey world. Mm. And I wanted to do this because although fantasy isn't my main genre, I A thought it was a cute concept Mm -hmm. and it's a way for me to work on two things that I want to improve on which is world building and creating voice but without worrying about some huge overarching plot. Mm, mm -hmm. So if anyone wants to contribute to this, please do send in your moments of urban magic. And what I'm going to try and do is create an urban fae creature's story around it
0: in a way that fits into this world.
1: Oh, I love that. Do you want
0: to give a couple examples again, just in case anyone hasn't heard the last episode? Yeah.
1: So um, I think the example that I gave last time was... I went on a night out. I lost a lipstick. A few days or a week later, I was walking past a wall that I always walk past, and it was perched, like fully cased up, intact in the wall, like at eye level. (laughs) And it was mine. (laughs) It was my one that I had lost. (laughs) Um, Uh... And it was just really strange and bizarre and cool. And someone else had said, like, even the moments where you're walking somewhere. And all of a sudden every light, every pedestrian crossing is green. Yeah. As you approach it and like you just think, oh that was magical. Like <laughs> I managed to get all the way from one end of the city to the other without stopping.
0: Oh, I love this idea so much.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about it. I think it's gonna be really fun. So I mean I could say that I'll try and do one per episode, but I maybe won't get that done. Mm. But I thought it would be a cool thing that I could share now and then. Yeah. And it'll keep me from getting into a total slump while giving me a break from like my big projects. Definitely. Sounds fun. It is fun.
0: (laughs) Do you have a quickfire favourite to share? I do. My favourite this week is a podcast. It's one I've actually been listening to for a few months now, but I'm finally getting round to shouting it out. And it is Off Menu with Ed Gamble and James A. Castor. This is a comedy podcast about food. So (laughs) each episode, a guest comes into the dream restaurant and gets to pick their dream starter main dessert side and drink. And it's always super hilarious, usually ends up with some kind of argument because everyone has very specific (laughs) food opinions. But it's also just so wonderful to listen to because everyone has food memories, which is really what the podcast Mm. is about—the memories that we attach to food. People often pick specific meals, so like from restaurants they've been to, or their mum's cooking, or like maybe even their own cooking. Everyone tends to have a story connected to whatever dish they pick. Um, Yeah. And while I've been home with my family, like. We've had multiple conversations about what our dream menu would be, and I don't think any of us have settled on it yet. Oh, I love that. So it's also just a fun conversation starter, this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, it's really funny. It's also super interesting. I love Ed Gamble and James A. Castor. I'm not like hugely into sort of stand up comedy, I used to be into it a lot more. But those are two who's like, I've seen their specials and stuff on. I think James has ones on Netflix and Ed Gamble has ones on Amazon. I think, and they're really right. funny. I recommend them if you do like stand up. So yeah, it also does make you hungry when you listen to it. I will warn you. <laughs> that
1: sounds amazing. Yeah, I might listen to that. You know, I'm not a huge like. I I hate branching out of my podcasts. I know. But I do enjoy food. Yeah,
0: it's like I. It's such a because podcasts can be very niche. But that just seems like one that I don't see how you wouldn't like it. Do you know what I mean? Like, Because yeah. everyone has food thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What's your quickfire favourite? My quickfire favourite is a Netflix
1: series which I absolutely gulped down last week called Teenage Bounty Hunters. Oh yeah! Um, it is as ridiculous as the title sounds. <laughs> Basically it follows- I'm not going to give away any spoilers, don't worry- it follows 16 year old twin sisters Sterling and Blair who are very upper middle class suburban Christian girls in Atlanta, Georgia. And These are clean cut but like extremely intelligent girls. The premise is they get into a scrape and end up falling in with their local bounty hunter <laughs> A hermit of a man who owns a frozen yoghurt shop in the town. So there's 10 50-minute episodes. They follow the girls as they navigate a double life of bounty. (laughs) It sounds so stupid. (laughs) A double life of bounty hunting and then like high school Bible fellowship and boyfriends and sex and schoolwork and family issues. Okay. And it is equal parts heartwarming and hilarious. I'd say that if people are fans of Jane the Virgin, there's a lot in common here. There's like the whole navigating religion and faith in a modern world, which is quite interesting. And there's themes of like self discovery, but there's also like mental telenovela type far fetchedness. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's honestly a delight from start to finish. There's not one single character that doesn't get fully fleshed out. And there's no one in it that like it, you really, really hate. Mm. So it's just nice to watch. And the thing that I've loved most about it, and if anyone else has watched it, please message me because I need to talk about it, is the way that the sisters are portrayed as their age. They are like very exuberant and like mm. a little bit naive because they're 16, right? And yeah. a lot of the time in shows, 16-year-olds are made to seem older. Yeah, um, these two are not. <laughs> they're not made to seem older, <laughs> but they're never made the butt of the joke for that. It's like part of their charm that they're allowed mm. to be like young girls and still have very like real intelligent thoughts and emotions.
0: Yeah. Oh, so, I like that.
1: Yeah, I I don't actually know if you would enjoy it because I don't know if it would be a bit too stupid <laughs> <laughs> for your taste. Like yeah, I've definitely I like sitcoms more than you.
0: Yeah, like I've definitely seen it. On Netflix and being like, mm. <laughs> I don't know, mm. <laughs> but
1: but um, I'd say it's like it's done in a way that's like really wholesome, but also just really funny. Yeah, it's really witty. So you have made yeah. it
0: sound like way more interesting than like it did to me when I just like saw it on Netflix. Like
1: the title of it, like it's funny because the title of it makes it sound like a really crappy like. Yeah. Show, you know, it sounds like a bad show, but it's like it's so self-aware mm. of like this is a stupid premise, and the characters are so self-aware where they're like, this is a stupid thing
0: <laughs> that, that okay. we're doing. Well, I do like the, that.
1: <laughs> it's a delight.
0: Have you got a root for us this week?
1: I do indeed. So the other day I said the phrase, oh, that warms the cockles of my heart, <laughs> to my friend and friend of the podcast, D, who is Canadian. Mm-hmm. And he asked me what that meant. <laughs> and kay. I had to laugh because my initial explanation was one that my gran had told me. And she had told me, when I asked her what it meant, that your heart is like a big cold ship covered in cockle shells. And if the cockles are warmed, you're warmed all the way through. Which is lovely. Oh, that's it's totally... so sweet! <laughs> but it's totally not true! Yeah. <laughs> so, I thought I'd share the real etymology of that here. And okay. for anyone that doesn't know, cockles are shellfish. They're like limpets. Which is probably why my grand said that. But anyway. <laughs> One of the meanings of cockle is the chamber of a kiln. In reference to the heart, it refers to the chambers of which there are four. To atria, and two ventricles. The heart has always been associated with emotions, especially love, excitement, and fear, probably because when we feel a strong emotion, we feel our heart thumping and beating faster. So when something warms the cockles of our heart, it is a reference to something pleasant that makes our heart beat faster and makes us feel good. It is probably also the origin of the saying that something gives us that warm and fuzzy feeling. Now, this is also interesting. The cockles of the heart are its ventricles, named by some in Latin as cochlea cordis, from cochlea (snail), alluding to their spirally shape, mm. meaning that the shell and the heart, like it all, it all comes back to the idea of like a little spirally
0: chamber oh. that a snail lives in. I love that. See, I, I would have said, like cockles of your heart, meant the chambers of your heart. But I couldn't have told you how I would have come to that <laughs> conclusion.
1: Well, I I would have said that it meant like the sh- like the shell, but I don't like I don't know what I meant by that, but yeah. I I, did, I mean like the hollow of it. Yeah. Um, which is the chamber. But what I found interesting about that as well is that obviously we refer to hearing implants as cochlear implants mm-hmm. because that chamber of your ear is a spiral shape.
0: Mm. So,
1: anything that is cochlea or cockle is probably just a spirally shaped snail shell. Nice! Which I didn't know. No! <laughs> so, there you are.
0: <laughs> do you have an insight for us this week? I do. It's also kind of a wordy thing, kind of. So, this is, it's very short. It's actually just a little post I saw on Pinterest. Again, it's been ripped off a of Tumblr. I don't have the person's original u- username, so, like, sorry, I can't. give credit to you i apologize but it's a little song of achilles musing for you okay so they say i'm really not okay with the fact that the ship name for achilles and patroclus is patrochilles i mean i get it it sounds really good in english and all but it messes the greek roots up so much it means father plus people with a superfluous chi in the middle I wish Akliklios didn't sound so silly in English because it means grievous glory and that's just so sad and horrible and appropriate. Oh! (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I liked that Uh, Oh,
1: Achilles. (laughs) You just like for Song of Achilles fans to suffer. I know!
0: (laughs) You're just like, here's some pain. If I have to read it, you have to read
1: (laughs) it. Oh man, that's a good one.
0: Do we have a question this week we do this is an interesting question actually because it kind of relates to your pandemic poetry sort of mm. the question's from rhiannon you're rhiannon, <laughs> as, oh, my rhiannon. as i call her <laughs> and she has asked opinions on coronavirus lockdown etc being used as the plot or part of a plot in a novel it's kind mm. of I don't have a problem in general with real life being used in media because like, that, that's how you tell stories, you know, you use real mm-hmm. life stuff. But I am pretty shocked at the speed in which I've seen this happen. I'm actually thinking about a film rather than a novel, but I don't know if you've heard about Songbird. No. It's out on Amazon and it is about like a mutation of Covid that has destroyed the world, essentially. And I just think at this moment in time... That's very distasteful.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is um, insensitive and distasteful.
0: Yeah, so like I I think I'd be very interested to sort of read some people's reflections on the pandemic, you know, in fiction or whatever, maybe in a few years time, but yeah. I would not enjoy reading it right now.
1: <laughs> I think that I think it's cheap to use COVID In particular, as a plot device, because that's just capitalizing on its, I don't want to say popularity, Mm. but like, you know, its ubiquity. You can easily use the narratively interesting parts of this experience, such as lockdown or isolation or like disease, and you can transpose that into a different story. Yeah. Yeah. It does not need to be COVID, it does not need to be that close to the bone.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious actually to see how Cassandra Clare's new book Chain of Iron turns out. So that's out next month Um, Mm. and it's the second part in a series. And in the first book in the series, it's already set up a kind of lockdown situation, which was written Um, Mm pre-Covid. I mean, this one may have been written pre-Covid as well. Uh, I don't know what the timeline was for like when she wrote it, but I'm intrigued yeah. to see how that's handled in this book. The fact that mm. there will have been a real life lockdown in between those the t- the release of those two yeah. books. Oh, that's difficult. I know, so I I wonder. Like I'm really curious if she changed anything, like mm. if she thought, oh maybe I need to pull back a bit, or I like I don't know, but I again I don't think that's. I think that is very different from someone writing about Covid. She's kind of done what you were just saying there, where she's brought in the yeah. idea of a lockdown or like a disease, but it was never intended to reflect real life. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's different. That's just a
1: unfortunate coincidence. Yeah. Almost. I think as well, something that we were talking in the Good News Poetry group that I go to on Sunday nights sometimes. It was a workshop, and we were speaking about how there's been surprisingly little COVID poetry mm. because it's something that I think everyone was expecting to see flooded like over Instagram, and everyone was kind of like, Oh no, don't do it, don't do it. Um, yeah. And there hasn't been a lot, but there's been a lot of like the themes, so a lot of body poetry um, to do with like health, and a lot of like loneliness poetry, mm. which you would expect both of those, but no one's directly sort of. Using COVID. And we were speaking about why that might be. And Sabrina Benham, who runs the workshop, had said that one of the best pieces of advice that she'd ever heard for writing was don't describe an atrocity with another atrocity. Mm. So, a lot of the time in poetry, like you are dealing with something difficult and trying to make it understandable. And she was like, it would be objectively, well, she didn't say this, but taking away that. Lesson. It would be objectively bad poetry to use COVID as a metaphor for something else that's hard. Yeah, like a lot of the time, bad. You can spot bad poetry if someone's like, I don't know, my breakup was like a war. Mm. It's t- it's too hard, horrible things, and it's too much. Yeah. Whereas if you say like, my breakup was like a broken dishwasher.
0: Yeah. That's a lot easier to handle. <laughs> yeah. I think as well like I just feel like a lot of writers would not have wanted to write about it because it's not no, a very it's fun happening. it's not a very fun topic either. Like No. I think a lot of the media that we have consumed in the past year has been very escapist. Um Definitely. I think that's why Bridgerton did so well to be honest is because it's just pure fantasy, like pure escapism. Like, mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's drama in it, but nothing horrible happens, you know? And I think it's why lots of shows of that nature have done really well. Fantasy novels I think it, as yeah. well, like, yeah.
1: There's a there's a discomfort now as well with anything that's set in modern times because, like, everyone's been saying, you know, you watch something that's set from a few years ago and everyone's bustling around. Yeah. And it makes you really uncomfortable to see that many people close yeah. together. But you can watch Bridgerton or any sort of fantasy thing, and because it's a different world or a
0: different time period, it makes sense to your eyes. <laughs> yeah, I know it's. To see it. I I've not watched this yet, but I've seen that the new season of This Is Us, uh, which is a show that we both mm. really like. Like they have COVID in it. I've I've seen. Oh. Um My mum is ahead of us now, <laughs> watching it. But yeah, she's like there. There are scenes where they are. You know, they're wearing masks to talk to oh, each my. other. And, like, I just don't know how I feel about watching it. But, I mean, This Is Us is pretty melodramatic. So, like, yeah. it kind of makes sense, actually, for them to use it, I think. They do tackle a lot of, like, real-world issues in a yeah, very dramatic they don't way. really shy away from
1: that. Yeah, but. so,
0: like, it does make sense. But even then, I, I can't imagine... Uh, again, I've not seen it, so I'm just talking out of my arse. But mm. I can't imagine that they've written in a COVID storyline. I think it's just that they're like, they have to live in the time yeah, of COVID. Yeah, like I imagine that's what they've done. I could be yeah. wrong. Who knows? But yeah. yeah, I
1: think that we're probably in agreement that t- it seems not okay to capitalize on the situation when it's still happening. Yeah, like. I don't think that that's a very respectful thing to do. That would be like, that would be like, somebody reading Anne Frank's diary back in the day <laughs> and being like, immediately, this is a great moneymaker.
0: Yeah, I know. You know, I've seen a few people talk about like, because also they made quite a few nine eleven films. Pretty soon after nine eleven happened. I'm thinking of like Remember Me and stuff like that. Mm. But I don't know, I'm not trying to like downplay that tragedy because it was absolutely horrific and should never have happened. But it seems slightly different in my brain to have like an isolated incident and writing mm-hmm. stories about that but then having a global <laughs> you know ongoing ongoing like issue. That just seems like a very strange thing to want to capitalise on, like, right now.
1: <laughs> also, the fact that, like, you can't
0: tell the the COVID
1: story because it's still happening. Yeah, I don't know how it I feel ends. like. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you need to, like, allow us to survive this and then then look back and go, okay, what was that narrative? How did that go? And then you could write something about it that yeah. does it justice. But, yeah. It's also kind of how I feel, like, it's the same way I feel about true crime, you know? Like, if, if the people are still alive and the victims' families are still alive, it's just a shady-ass moneymaker, and it feels uncomfortable. So, mm. if this is still killing people, maybe don't try and make
0: money off of it right now. I slightly disagree with you on true crime because I think if it's the victim telling the story, then I'm well, that's kind different. of all for it. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Like, yeah, I think the best word is just like distasteful, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting question, though.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm open to being convinced otherwise, though. So if anyone wants to come back at us with an yes. argument, then please, please do. <laughs> Okay, then that is us today. Do we have a is is the next
0: one that we have a little surprise for people? I think it's a surprise. I think. Okay. <laughs> Look forward to that. Vague <laughs> announcement. Yeah, if you have any comments or questions, please send them to infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. Rebecca's obviously taken all your little suggestions for her. What is it? What are you calling it? Like city magic, urban? Yeah, just urban magic. It doesn't really have a name yet, but that's <laughs> that's the vibe. Yeah, and everything that we have talked about today is in the description as well as like links to everything. Oh, I did this last episodes, <laughs> but I told you guys that I'd made a ninth house playlist after talking about ninth house, and I have a Starless Sea playlist on Spotify as well so I'm also going to link that, because that's apparently just what I do now. Um, (laughs) And yeah, please leave our rating and review. We always forget to say this, but please do that, because that helps us out a lot, Um, and follows on social media. And I think that is everything. (laughs) We really, one day we will rehearse the outro, (laughs) but until that day. (laughs) Maybe I should write it down. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I think it's part
0: of our charm that we don't really know what we're doing. That's oh, fine. But yeah. Okay. Anyway, thank you Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye.